Please pray with me. Father, we, we cry out to you as the psalmist. And we ask that, Lord, our ways would be directed to keep your statutes so that we will have no reason nor cause to be ashamed when we have respect unto your commandments. And Lord, that it might result in us saying, I will praise you with uprightness of heart because Lord, I have learned the righteous judgments. And Father, we pray that you would do that this morning. God, as we look into your word, that it is you, Lord, that directs our ways, that you would call us, that the affections of our hearts would be warmed, that the souls that you have saved within us will leap, and that, God, our desires would be to run after you, God, to know you, to hope in you, to trust in you. And God, as a result, be able, no matter how things look in our world, to celebrate, to be a people filled with joy. So God, may you do that this morning through the proclamation of your word. And Father, we ask that you would make it clear to us and that, Lord, the heartstrings of our heart would sing aloud to praise you because you have taught us your statutes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in the book of Nahum. Uh, if you do not have a Bible with you, the Pew Bible in front of you is there for your use. The book of Nahum can be found on page 782. Uh, it is a very tiny book in the Old Testament. It might cause a lot of page flipping to find it. So uh, if you hit Jonah, keep going to the right. If you hit Zechariah or Zephaniah, the Z's go back to the left. And at some point, you will run into it. Um, with that in mind, <clears throat> perhaps you've read or seen the movies concerning the Lord of the Rings. In Peter Jackson's masterful theatrical drama, particularly in the movie The Two Towers, we're brought into the great hall of Theoden, king of Rohan, and into the council regarding the threats that his nation is facing to its very existence. To his west, he has the white wizard Saruman, who is mounting a significant army of orcs to destroy them. To the east, in Mordor, the wicked sorcerer Sauron is rising in power and will soon spread across his land with the express goal of ridding the world of men. The north and south will provide no comfort, no help, and no refuge. Yet despite these threats and opposition and the urging of the wise wizard Gandalf to go out and meet his enemy, 
Theoden, king of Rohan, is unwilling. And he says, I know what it is you want of me, but I will not bring further death to my people. I will not risk open war. Seems very noble. But it is in that moment, like a loud thunderclap, that Aragorn, the future king of Gondor, says to him, open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. Revelation 12, 17 says to us, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, in preaching to the saints at Lystra, said the following, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What, does these passages, what do these passages tell us? They tell us that if we are going to be followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be mindful that open war is upon us, whether we would risk it or not. The culture, the world, and even nations are opposed to the people of the living God. And like Sauron and Mordor, today their strength seems to be ever growing greater and greater and greater. Now this should not surprise us, nor should it strike us as something new. This has always been the case since the Garden of Eden, and it will be the case until Christ returns. But what are we to do? How are we to deal with this? How should we view it, and how should we live? I believe the book of Nahum has significant answers for us. And if there is one thing I hope that you walk away with thinking about, meditating on, and knowing today, it is this. We are to celebrate the coming of the divine warrior who will bring salvation through judgment. We are to celebrate the coming of the divine warrior who will bring salvation through judgment. Turn with me to Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1 verse 1 says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The book opens with a stunning statement. It says, The oracle concerning Nineveh. This word oracle is used as a prophetic oracle and specifically describes a prophecy predicting the divine destruction of a foreign nation. The word itself is a technical term, and in most contexts, it means war oracle against a foreign nation. This word appears five times in the book of the Twelve, what we call minor prophets. Here in Nahum, it occurs in Habakkuk, Zechariah twice, and in the book of Malachi. And each time it produces, it, it, it is speaking of destructive judgment against a nation. It is also used predominantly quite a bit in Isaiah, in Isaiah 13, 14, 15, 17, 19, 21, and on. It's used a lot, and it is for the express purpose of divine judgment. 
the severity in the book of Jud- or in Nahum is, is communicated to us at least twice. In verse chapter 2, verse 13, where Yahweh says, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. That term, Lord of hosts, is a military term. It is the Lord of a significant and powerful army. He says it also again in chapter 3, verse 5. In chapter 1, verses 114, you see God's opposition to Nineveh when he says, I am going to cut you off, a term that is not a good one. And dig your grave and bury you in it. Now, from the outset as the reader, this might bring relief, but it also might bring shock. Why? Well, at this time, Nineveh is as strong as it has ever been. Ashurbanipal II is the king. He has expanded the empire that has existed for over a thousand years to its greatest extent, and they are as strong as they have ever been. And yet, here you have this oracle concerning Nineveh. Now, look at the object. The object of this judgment, obviously, is Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, so the Assyrian Empire is in mind here. As I said, it's roughly existed for about a thousand years. There have been times where it had significant strength and influence, and there were times in which it did not. At the time that we're reading here, it was at its strength. It was known as a nation or an empire for its wealth and prosperity. The very location of Nineveh is on the Tigris River, which made it a central location for trade, and not just trade, but it allowed it to be the center of the flow of money in the region. It was possibly the largest and most secure city in the world at the time. Assyria was known for its military might. It actually created one of the world's first professional armies. It developed advanced military technologies that allowed it to have significant advantages over all the other countries that opposed them. And they, and they were able to fight all throughout the entire year. Most, people, most countries only fought in the spring and summer. But due to the technology and things that they were able to develop, they were able to fight year round, giving them once again a significant advantage. They are also known for being an intellectual center, a center and a place of artistry and craftsmanship. And Nineveh, we find through Assyriological studies, had a large, significant library. It, ha- it housed tens of thousands of parchments and tablets. They were an educated people, if you will. Archaeology shows us that their royal palaces were filled with crafted ivory and murals and all kinds of craftsmanship. They appear to be a very cultured people, but they were also known for their power and influence over the nations. And they were very cruel in how they did it. They would conquer a nation and literally strip it of its resources. You see this alluded to in Nahum chapter 2, verse 12. They often controlled through fear and cruelty. It was nothing for them to flay people of their skin, chop 
decapitate them, or massacre people. Why? To rule with fear. They held considerable religious influence over the nations with their pagan religion. You can see that again alluded to in Nahum 1.14. This included sexual deviant practices, murdering of children, and the like. They were a wicked people, but they were the superpower of the region. Again, you can see that also alluded to in Nahum 3, verse 19, when you see that God says he can't even find anybody to lament them. They're that bad. Their influence has been that pervasive. These categories are typically what we know to create a superpower. Wealth, prosperity, centralization of the flow of money, strong military with advanced technology, power and influence over nations, whether that is through economics or whatever, or through religion. This should sound familiar to us. It's true today, as it was true then. The object of God's judgment is Assyria. This is not a small player, and they are the object of God's judgment, but why? Well, I would pose to you, they are the object of God's judgment because of the treatment of the people whom he loves. Now, before we get to this, I want to set some context here. Jim is not here. Jim is going to be proud of me for this, I hope. We need to understand the story of the Bible so that we can set what's going on in here in context, right? God creates man, puts him in the garden. He gives him good words. He rebels against those. He is then thrown out of the garden. God pronounces judgments in Genesis 3, particularly on the serpent. And what does he say in Genesis 3:15? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity has begun. War, conflict starts. But who is that conflict with? It is the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. This theme is important for our understanding of not just what's going on here, but in how we view history in general. Think about this. Right after that, Genesis 4, Cain, seed of the serpent, strikes down and kills his brother Abel. Why? Because Abel is righteous. He is the seed, the woman. Genesis 21, Ishmael mocks Isaac, why? Seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. Genesis 33, we just heard that last week, a couple weeks ago. Esau, seed of the serpent, opposing his brother Isaac, seed of the woman. This theme of opposition to God and to his people occurs all throughout the Bible, all the way up until what we read from Revelation 12 this morning, where the seed of the serpent is making war on the church. Now again, this theme is important for us to understand how history is unfolding and God's intervention in history and why he does 
what he does. And I think it is helpful to have that framework to understand why we see God's judgment on Assyria here. It is because Assyria, like Cain, like Ishmael, like Esau, and like the dragon, is the seed of the serpent. And it is opposing the people of God represented here, I think, as the seed of the woman. Look in verse 13, or excuse me, 11 through 13. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will not be cut down and pass away. They will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and I will burst your bonds apart. It's the people of God's afflictions and their bonds that are in view here. God is crushing Assyria because of their bonds upon the people of God. The evil, however, that is being done here, you can see in verse 11, is an evil that is against the Lord. When the nations oppose the people of God, they are opposing the living God. That's the point here. Nahum 1, 14 through 15 says, The Lord has given commandment about you, referring to Assyria. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through who? You. He is utterly cut off. Again, Assyria's idols are opposing God, but you see here that God is crushing them from their effect and war upon the people of God. It is them that are being saved here. Again, I think this is an important theme for us to point out. And I hope that made you proud, Jim. Why am I pointing this out? The Bible demonstrates this. The nations wield wealth, prosperity, culture, and militaries and control for one purpose. To oppose the living God. Consider Psalm 2, 1 through 2. Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. Why do they use these things? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. What's the point we're learning here so far in Nahum? The people of God will face opposition. Nations and culture will seek to use their wealth, power, influence, control, religion, whether it is secular in name or otherwise, it matters not, to oppose and destroy the people of God. They are and shall wield these weapons against us. It's the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. So the culture is at war with church because it is at war with God. Nahum demonstrates, I believe, 
that God wages war on the nations because they are waging war on him by waging war on his people. If we would view history properly, we need to see history as an unfolding story of conflict that started in the Garden of Eden and that will end upon Christ's return. So what do we do? What do we do when they're at full strength in many, as it says there in verse, oh, I lost my place, but I read it to you earlier. <laughs> um, what do we do? We're going to celebrate. That's what we're going to do. Now you're going to say, what? What do you mean we're going to celebrate? That sounds like craziness. It's not. We're going to celebrate. So let's look at Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, where I think Nahum, in the midst of judgment, is calling the people of God to celebrate the divine warrior who comes to bring salvation through judgment. Verse 2, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. Mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming, overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, why is this a celebration? Verse 2 through verse 8 is structured as a hymn. This is a psalm. You have an introduction by Nahum, judgment on Nineveh. Now sing and celebrate. Why? What are we celebrating here? There are two things I want you to notice here as we go through this. Breaks up in chapter 1, 2 through the first part of 3, where we celebrate God's zeal or his affections for his people and his action against his enemies. And in verse 3, the second part of that through verse 8, where we celebrate God's judgment on his enemies in the world. So let's look at verse 2, where we celebrate God's zeal for action against his enemies. Verse 2, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is jealous. Now, we need to read this not like a 12-year-old in middle school who's been jilted at the high school dance or middle school dance. 
Maybe you all don't go to those. When I was a young kid, those were places of a lot of tears and a lot of broken hearts. But this is not what God is. God is not petty. God is not whining. He is not some crazy person. This word that is being used here is a, a close parallel to that would be like that of marriage. Marriage is the only relationship where partners are bound to an exclusive tie. It is right and good and beautiful for a husband or wife to be jealous for their partner's affections if they are giving it to someone or something other than themselves. That is a right and good and beautiful thing. And God is jealous for his people. Why? Because he will not share his people with anyone. He will not let others nilly-willy hurt his bride. God is zealous, jealous for them. In Exodus 34, 6, we see that God's glory and the motivation behind is God describing his name to Moses in there is the fact that he is jealous. God demands exclusive love from his people and God gives exclusive, unconditional love to his people. God is jealous for his people. That ought to encourage us. He says here, he's avenging and wrathful and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, why would God be like this? You know, the best way for me to avoid going into error on this is just to read what somebody else wrote. So that's what I'm going to do here. This comes from Wayne Gruden. He says, if God loves all that is right and good and that conforms to his moral character, then it should not be surprising that he would hate everything that is opposed to his moral character. God's wrath directed against sin is therefore closely related to God's holiness and justice. As with other attributes of God, this is an attribute for which we should thank and praise God. It may not immediately appear to us how this can be done, since wrath seems to be a negative concept. Viewed alone, it would arouse only fear and dread. Yet, it is helpful to ask what God would be like if he were a God who did not hate sin. He would then be a God that either delighted in sin or at least was not troubled by it. And such a God is not worthy of our worship for sin is hateful and it is worthy of being hated. It is in fact and a virtue to hate evil and sin. God doesn't love abortion. He hates it. God does not love racism or injustice. He hates all those things. God does not love sin at all. He is angered by it. The Lord, however, is slow to anger 
and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Again, we see here, God, however, is slow to anger. He is not unreasonable. He is not impetuous. It is not as though he does not have reason or cause. He doesn't explode and then go, oops. He has cause, reason to do so. Those who do find themselves playing with sin, find themselves dealing with an all-powerful God. A parallel passage where you see this actually come from is Exodus 34. So if you you remember, Moses asks to see God's glory. And God says he will. He puts him in the cleft of a rock, places his hand over him, passes by, and he says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, Nahum may have been alluding to this passage to draw his reader's attention to God's love. God's affection and salvation for them as he has done in the past. Again, they are able to look and see that this God who spoke to Moses has done these things and will he also not do them now? Will he deliver his people? Yes, he will. Because that's who this God is. He is slow to anger, but he is great in power. And he will judge. So what are we saying here? God is jealous for his people. He's jealous and he loves them. God hates sin. And I want to clarify something because I think in our culture, this stuff gets run all over the place. When God hates sin, like abortion, it's because it kills people. And I want to be clear about this. God hates racism in all its forms, not just one. And God hates injustices wherever they are found, not just one side of it. That may get me in trouble with somebody listening online. I don't know. But we need to be clear about that. God hates sin in all directions, not just one. Abraham, what did God say to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Right? These people are opposing the people of God. And that is something I want to be very clear of because I think that much of the justice of God is hijacked today. What God is doing here, he is doing for his people. The people of God are the object of his salvation. The people of God are the, re- are the judgment through salvation. Judgment through salvation is to save the people of God. It is not to create wonderful nations. Now, you may disagree with me. I don't think God is a nation builder. I think he is a kingdom builder. Nahum chapter 3, verses second part of chapter 3 through 8, we see God that we should celebrate judgment on his enemies in the world. It's a song. Remember, this is a psalm. Of praise. We are to praise for this. Notice it says, His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. 
So what we have here is an appearing. This is what we call in theological language a theophany. It's a visible manifestation of God to humanity. And this often happens in the New Old Testament where God appears to his people through a storm and a whirlwind or a cloud. We see this in Exodus 19 when God descends to be with his people and give them the law. He descends in a cloud of fire and of lightning and thunder and tells them not to come close lest they die. When they are wandering in the wilderness, God's presence is with them, signified by a pillar of cloud. Clouds here are, are used as God's chariots, if you will. He is riding them into battle. But notice how he refers to them. The clouds are dust. You ever seen dust? It's like very tiny. And this just gives us further clarity to the enormity of the one who is coming. The clouds are the dust of his feet. We see references here to the very power of God. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. Again, likely allusions to the Exodus where you see God drying up the, the Red Sea. The word that's used here for rebuke can also be translated blast. It has a strong connotation of a forceful, destructive movement accompanied by a frightening noise. So imagine this. God's standing on the coast of California and he looks at the Pacific Ocean and it just goes, boom, it's gone. That's what we're talking about here. That's some power. Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon, these were places associated with luxury, fertility, and growth. What do we see here? When the divine warrior shows up, not even nature resists him, can oppose him. The mountains, they quake. The hills melt. The earth heaves. These ideas of stability, like mountains and hills, gone. In verse 6, we see his wrath is poured out like fire, and rocks are broken in pieces by him. This idea of broken in pieces is often used in a military-type context in which towers, high places, and such are torn down and destroyed. What's the point here? Nothing can resist the judgment of God. Nothing. Nothing man crafts in nature. Nothing that he tries to use in nature. No nation craft, no military might can resist God when he comes in judgment, which is precisely what, after we read this, what Nahum's getting to in verse 6 when he says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Well, if we get what everything's been said thus far, the answer's pretty obvious, right? No one. No one. We see in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, 
when judgment is coming, what are the people doing? They're crying out for the rocks to fall on them. Nature, hide us. How do we wield something to defend ourselves against the God who's coming in judgment? And the answer is there's nothing you can do. There is no thing that can protect any nation or person from the judgment of God. How are you feeling so far? Notice what he says next. This is sweet. Right in the midst of this, he breaks out and he says, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The verse sets forth the positive function of the divine warrior's activity. He cares for his people. He protects them. He delivers them. Notice here, it says the Lord is good. Goodness is often associated with covenant faithfulness. What does that mean? God keeps his promises. That's what we're dealing with here. He keeps his promises to judge those who seek to oppress his people. He keeps his promises to save those of his people. Notice, this goodness, the object of it, isn't everyone. Now, you may be offended by that if you're hearing this. But God's good, faithful, covenant faithfulness is not projected, if you will, toward everyone. It is projected toward those who take refuge in him. Those who take refuge in him. God has covenant faithfulness with them. And he cares for them. It says here, he knows them. The knowing of the Lord is best understood in the biblical sense of loving them with the most intense care. Man, this is great. And notice, he's a stronghold in a day of trouble. Well, this right we're reading is a day of trouble, right? But if you know him, if you are in Christ, guess what? Man, you're safe. That's awesome. So God's action judgment is motivated by his love for his glory and that glory that he gives to his people. And God will defend his people out of love for his own glory. Now, you might be here this morning, and maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you're listening online, and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're living in a Christian home, and you're a kid, and you're not a Christian. You need to know this is what you're facing. This is the God you are facing. This God does not like sin. It is an affront to him. It is not merely, I tell this to my children all the time, sin is not merely the breaking of a rule. It is that. But it is the violation of a person. That is different. To say don't kill is one thing. You don't break a law only by killing somebody. You violate it an image bearer of God. Sin is a violation 
of the righteous, holy, infinite God. And he's coming in this kind of judgment for it. That's how bad it is. But God has made a way for you. This is good news. The Lord is good. He's got a covenant promise for you. That covenant promise is in Jesus Christ, his son, who came, lived the righteous life we should have lived, was crucified and bore this wrath that you see here upon himself for you so that if you by faith would trust in him, guess what? You are now in him. You know him. He's your stronghold and you are saved. Hallelujah. That's good news. But here's the thing. As much as Nahum advertises this good news, he ends by saying, but. So in other words, if this is not you, if this is not what you decide to do, he says, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And that ought to scare you. If you're not in Jesus, that ought to scare you. But if you are, whew, man, praise the Lord. <laughs> so in conclusion, before I want to get to some application, but I just want to say this. God is jealous for his people. God will protect and care for his people even when they are being oppressed by nations, God will answer. So what do we do? We celebrate. That's what we do. Open war is upon us. What are we going to do? Well, verse 15, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. In other words, hey, God is coming. Rejoice. He's coming. Man, life is miserable. Right? We've got COVID. Our nation is falling to pieces. It is instituting legislation that is completely at war with God and his people. If you feel the crunch and you're tempted to get angry, or you're tempted to despair, or whatever the case is, guess what? He is coming to make things right. This is not the way it's going to stay. God is coming. I love Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, if you want to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. It says, Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen 
white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Guess what? Jesus is coming. He's coming. Do you believe that? I'm going to tell you, if you don't believe that, you should despair. If you don't believe that, you should be depressed. Because there's no hope. None. But he's coming. And he is going to wage war against the nations who have opposed him. You know, I, I, one of my favorite scenes of all time, and I, I have to admit to you, sometimes it's hard for me to watch it because I, I cry. It's actually in the last movie of uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Yeah, you just laugh because you're like, oh, man, this must be a, a, a sorry drama. No. But you have the siege of Gondor happening, right? The orcs are taking it over. The, the men are withdrawing. They keep withdrawing back further and further to try to get protection. And every time they draw back, there's further more men that are taken. It looks hopeless. And the, the big captain orc says, all right, we're in a good place, right? He goes, whole army into the city. Kill everybody in your path. Man, it looks bad. It looks bad. My favorite noise in that whole movie happens. You know what it is? It's that horn. You hear that horn blow. And you look up to the hill. And there comes your help. This large, significant army led by a king drives down into this army and cuts it asunder. I think about Revelation 19 every time I see that. Because that's what it's going to be like. Look, you may be tempted to hopelessness. You may be tempted to despair. You may be even angry about what we see going on in our culture, our nation, the world. You just need to know they're doing it because they're opposing the living God. And you will be the object of that. But here's the thing. Man, look up unto the hills. He's coming. man that's something we ought to celebrate so we need to celebrate we also need to live as a unique people of God we see here it says here Judah keep your feasts O Judah fulfill your vows the feasts of Israel were significant redemptive markers of who they were as a people we have the Passover feast right we have the feast of Pentecost. Where do we see those fulfilled in the New Testament? In Christ, in the giving of the Spirit, right? We too have things that mark us out as the unique people of God that we need to exercise. I'm just going to give you a few. This is an exhaustive one. Man, we need to meet. We need to gather. 
We need to worship. We need to do this. Why? Because we need each other. Do you know that? You need each other. It doesn't matter you don't like each other at times. You need each other. That is the way God has made it. Read the book of Hebrews. You can't persevere without me. And I can't persevere without you. We need each other. We need to be together. We need to stir one another up to love and good deeds. How do we do that? By not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That's how we do it. We need to be together. We need to keep the ordinances. We're good Baptists. We need to talk about this. We need to keep believers' baptism. We need to keep the Lord's Supper. Why? These are unique identifiers of our redemptive heritage that God has given us. And we need to keep them. And we need to celebrate them. These are unique identifiers. There's more, but we need to be the unique people of God. We need to keep our vows. It says here, keep your vows. Vows are covenantal commitments. So if you are in Christ, you are a member of a new covenant. And Christ has saved us to be a unique people that are holy as he is holy. What do we do in the midst of of nations at war with us. We celebrate. And we live as the unique people of God. That's what we do. That's what we do. And trust me, that is how you fight this kind of war. We celebrate the reality of Jesus' coming when we live as the unique people of God. Like Theoden, we are surrounded. We're surrounded by the nations, by the culture. They oppose us. They appear to have all the strength and might. They have all the things that make them seemingly a superpower. Open war is upon us, whether we would risk it or not. And it always has been. I love that word. Soon the horns are going to blow. And over that hill is going to come somebody on a horse with, whose name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he is going to judge and to save us. And that should make us celebrate. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, God, you would use this word to glorify your name, that you would create in us a great expectation, a great hope that you are coming to save your people. Father, I pray that would help us know that how much we are loved by you, how much you care for us, how much, Lord, you desire to make your name known by saving us. And so, Lord, we pray that as the nations rage against your church, whether it is here 
in America or in other countries. We pray for our brothers and sisters all throughout the world that God as the seed of the serpent wages that we would know you are going to crush his head. He will not win. You will come. In Jesus' name, amen.